Hi, this is Alan Parker, doing the commentary for the life of David Gale. I was first uh, sent this script in September of 2000. Um, at the time everybody was scrambling around trying to find their next movie because there was going to be a strike of uh, actors and writers in Hollywood. So everybody was uh, going crazy trying to find something to do, myself included. And this script uh, came to me. It had been originally at... Um, at Warner Brothers, uh, where it, uh, it was originally written in 1998. It was the first screenplay written by Charles Randolph. And um, I guess it had been gathering dust on the shelf there at Warner Brothers. And um, uh, I read it. Nicholas Cage's company had developed it, and I knew Nicholas because I made Birdie with him many years ago when he was a young man. And... Uh, and so I went to meet with Nicholas and uh, I said, can I have the script? He didn't ever want to be in it. He had two other films of his own that he was doing uh, and he was going to direct his own film, so he was pretty busy. So he said yes. Uh, he gave me the script and uh, I, uh, I carried on with it. The scene you just saw was Kate Winslet running, was shot in Texas. This scene here is obviously meant to be a news magazine in New York City. Uh, obviously the shot of New York was done in New York, but... Uh, this whole uh, news uh, office was actually a set that we did in Austin, Texas. Uh, the actors that I cast, many of the actors are local actors. Cleo King, who you see here, uh, who plays Bitsy's boss, uh, was actually cast in Los Angeles. I cast in Los Angeles and in New York and obviously in Austin, where actors came in from Dallas and Houston, many of the actors are. This is Cleo King here. Uh, this whole news magazine uh, set was actually an empty building, an empty office, which uh, was all dressed uh, by the art department. To obviously, every single thing you see in it was brought in. It was completely empty room when we first came into it, but it actually wasn't shot in New York. It was shot uh, in Austin. Only Bitsy means only Bitsy. I don't get to make. And when I got the script, I said to, to Nicholas, "Can I have it?" He gave me the script, uh, and I went off to uh, Universal, and uh, they agreed to make the film. I'd responded to the script because one, it was a very intelligent screenplay. Uh, kind of scripts that come out of Hollywood these days rarely are thoughtful or or have a political heart, which this film obviously does. Uh, but it was written, obviously, as a very exciting thriller, and it was the thriller aspect of it, obviously, which was attractive to, to Universal, to the studio. And so they 
they said yes, they'd like to make it. Um, when you make a movie, there's three things the studio's interested in. One is, how much did it cost? How much is it going to cost, I should say? What's the script and uh, who's in it? And increasingly these days, they're very concerned about who's in it. Kate Winslet uh, had got hold of a screenplay. I actually didn't send it to her. She got hold of it quite early and uh, she phoned me and she kept phoning me saying, I really want to do the film. Uh, she loved the script. Uh, the studio were, were somewhat reluctant to begin with. I think they saw Kate really as the English rose in, in corsets, which is a lot of the parts that she's played. Uh, she's obviously a remarkable actress. She was nominated for an Academy Award twice before she was 20, which is pretty extraordinary. And of course she did uh, play an American in, in Titanic, which was a reasonably successful film. And so um, uh, the job really was for me to persuade the studio, not that she was a great actress, because that's very obvious that she is, but actually that she could do an American accent, which she'd, she worked very hard on with a uh, uh, dialect coach. Uh, for many months to, to, for her accent to be as good as it is and I think it's very good um, of the local actors here Lee Ritchie is the act, local actor that I found locally who plays the editor uh, again this, all this set was actually shot in Austin, Texas uh, the, most of the movie was made in Austin, Texas or in the surrounding areas Come on, Barbara, not an intern. I always work alone. Not this time, Bitsy. Look, I'm not babysitting. When you go to a place like Austin, um, or indeed any location, you try and absorb it. I'd gone and uh, I'd spent many, many months looking for locations. Most of the locations, I say, were actually in Austin or in the surrounding area, except, of course, for the walls, Huntsville Prison and the exterior of Ellis, which we'll come to later, Ellis Prison. But uh, you try and absorb the place because the place becomes another character in the film and uh, to try and be as authentic and as real as possible. Gabriel Mann, who plays Zach here, um, I had cast in Los Angeles. I must have seen hundreds and hundreds of uh, young actors for this particular part, some very famous actors and some not so famous. But uh, I always liked his quality. He's, there's a wonderful... Uh, uh, naive, ingenuous quality uh, about him as he plays this part. Uh, and Zach obviously is a character who's uh, far too smart for his own good. But uh, even though he's kind of a bit of a smart ass, there's always a likable quality to him, which I think is testament to how, how Gabe Mann plays the part. I remember shooting this scene in the middle of the night, actually, on a very busy highway. Uh, um, which was a pr pretty hairy, actually, all of us uh, on the following uh, car and uh, or the camera in front of this particular vehicle, which was... Uh, it's always difficult doing interior of car scenes, um, particularly if you're on a real highway. Uh, and that was us in the middle of all that, so it, it was not easy to do. A little easier when you get onto the quiet stretches of the road. Again, this was all shot... Uh, just outside uh, Austin, although obviously in, in the film it's, they're meant to be coming towards Huntsville. Um, <clears throat> for practical reasons, obviously, you try and make all of your locations as close to where your base is as possible. Our base actually was uh, at the uh, old private airfield in Austin, which had been sort of made into a de facto uh, film studio. Uh, our offices were in the uh, 
the old control tower of the old uh, airport and uh, all of our sets that we built, which I'll come to later, were all built in, in the disused hangars. The city of, of Austin uh, had decided to make this a film facility and it's a pretty terrific film s facility that it that it is it's almost as good as any film studio that I've been in and uh, great to find some in the middle of Texas. This obviously is the uh, the cowboy in the film is um, Dusty, which is played by Matt Craven, uh, an actor who I uh, had cast, had met in Los Angeles. Um, Matt is an uh, extraordinary actor, extraordinary face, and uh, and absolute gentleman, and uh, terrific to work with. We hear here. Uh, slightly the the Turandot Puccini music which obviously figures very importantly throughout the film and obviously in the conclusive moments uh, which we'll see later again most of the uh, these scenes were shot uh, in the small towns that surround Austin um, they're, they're almost like a, a back lot for a filmmaker in that uh, there's lots of empty buildings and empty streets, deserted as many of these small towns are, typical of rural America. This particular scene is uh, was done twice, believe it or not. Um, originally, when we started this scene, uh, we were in a place called uh, Jim's Diner, and uh, we were hit by a tornado, and suddenly, um, uh, as the as the tornado was going getting closer and closer towards us, everything went as black as night, and all the lights and everything started bouncing down the highway, and so we were surrounded in by uh, three sides by glass, and it was it was a much bigger diner than this one where we reshot it, so I had to uh, abandon filming for that day, and we all uh, huddled in the kitchen in the middle, 50 of us. And uh, we put Kate and her baby into the into the food storage area for extra safety, whilst the um, the tornado went overhead. Um, once it had blown past us, then we were able to limp back to the hotel. But it meant that uh, we had to abandon the, all of the filming that I did there. So I had to start from scratch again to re redo this particular scene, which you are seeing here, which I then shot in in a much smaller diner. And uh, thankfully, the weather was a lot kinder um, the day we redid this. But in a funny kind of way, I'm quite happy to redo it because uh, I think sometimes when you've uh, done something once, it's always hard to to, to redo it. But actually, this it came out a lot better than how we were doing it the first time. Again, we're on the way to um, in our story. We're on the way to Ellis Prison. Ellis Prison uh, was where uh, death row was until 1999. Um, the uh, death row is now actually at a prison uh, called Polanski. It was originally called Terrell when I went there, but they changed the name because Mr. Terrell didn't like his name being associated with death row. But here we come into the real prison. This is actually uh, Ellis Prison. This is not a set. This is obviously the real place. Everyone at the Texas Department for Criminal Justice was extraordinarily helpful to us. And uh, we obviously were allowed um, only outside because this is a maximum uh, security prison. So the exterior there you saw was, was the real prison. And then 
these uh, inner sequence scenes were all um, built as sets um, at our de facto studio. So obviously as helpful as the prison service was, they weren't going to allow 150 film crew inside their maximum security prison. So this really is an illusion here because we're supposedly coming into the prison that you saw the wide shot of earlier, but this was uh, the beginnings of our set. I had gone to Ellis originally during my preparation and uh, we pretty well all of this set is pretty is very accurate down to the signs and photographs on the wall very close to what I found at uh, at Ellis Ellis uh, is we made into death row even though death row now is at Polanski which is a very modern prison Ellis was the prison in 1999, as I say, when Charles Randolph originally wrote the script in 98. Ellis was the prison, so we sort of set it then, even though obviously we're very aware that um, Death Row had now, has, has now moved to a much more modern prison. I suppose I wanted it to be Ellis because Ellis is cinematically slightly more interesting than, than the Polanski uh, prison because that's a very high-tech prison. It's... Uh, uh, very modern, doesn't have the feel and smell of a, of, a, of a prison anymore, although obviously it's extraordinarily effective. One of the things that, um, that all you always find when you get into prisons is an extraordinary amount of identification and security that you have to go through. And all of these little things I put into the, into the original script because of having gone through this many times myself, going to the real Ellis prison. I was fortunate to go to the Ellis prison and um, I even had lunch with the inmates, which was quite an experience. The PR man here, Jim Beaver, uh, played by Jim Beaver, um, is based on, on, a, on a similar PR gentleman at, uh, at the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, who uh, was incredibly helpful to us, uh, very affable, avuncular gentleman, and one of the things that strikes you about the Texas Department of Criminal Justice with regards to their capital punishment and, and their administering of the executions is how incredibly open they all are. They feel that it's uh, the law of Texas and whilst it's the law of Texas they're doing their, their job. So they were extraordinarily helpful and kindly in the same way that, that Jim is playing this part was uh, was based on, on, on the real PR gentleman at uh, at the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. We're still in our set here. Uh, we come across in the, to the uh, very uh, eccentric Japanese garden here, which was something that uh, I had seen at uh, Ellis, which I thought was rather uh, uh, eccentric for the inside of a maximum security prison. But uh, it's one of those curiosities you, you come across and you put into a film. This is our visitation area right here. All yours, Mr. Bellew. Well, that's it for me. Hey, you folks have a safe visit. Thank you. Bye now. Miss Bloom? Yes. Come this right on uh, Make is all part of our set, obviously, the visitation area. It's extraordinarily uh, accurate to the original, the one that's actually in the prison. Um, not only does it look exactly like the original, 
prison, but it's actually made of the same material as the production designer, Jeffrey Kirkland, made it of bulletproof glass and solid steel. He made it so well, in fact, that I couldn't actually get inside to talk to Kevin. Um, and not only that, it was um, incredibly difficult for the cameramen to get their lights and everything in. But um, sometimes you, if you don't make it out of the real materials, it looks phony. Steel is, has to be made of steel. And so this uh, is about as real as it could possibly be. Um, Kevin, his first appearance here, obviously. I was in, um, in China at the Shanghai Film Festival when Kevin phoned me to say he wanted to do the part, uh, which was wonderful for me in that... Uh, uh, I'd obviously been a great fan. He's a consummate actor. The great thing about Kevin is that, uh, apart from being an extraordinary gentleman, which uh, makes it a lot easier to to work with, he has a quality about him which is uh, um, he's not he's not afraid to show the flaws and imperfections in a character. Uh, Leon Rippey here plays the lawyer Belia. Uh, Leon. Uh, uh, not the normal actor looks, which obviously I like. Uh, it's based on a very similar kind of uh, lawyer. Um, and uh, again, a very easy gentleman to work with. But Kevin has the ability to um, twist those imperfections and flaws in the character and take them by the scruff of the neck and throw them back differently so that the character can still be uh, noble and still be sympathetic. The way the film was shot was, uh, for the first six weeks, we did all of uh, Kevin and Laura Linney's uh, story, which is the back st story in, in our film. And then for the last six weeks, it was uh, Kate Winslet and uh, Gabriel Mann's part, which is the present day thriller aspect of the, of the, of the film. Um, and therefore there was a slight overlap of five days which was when we did these interviews which were were all done one after the other although of course they're all interspersed within the film one of the great difficulties Kate had is that um, of course she she what we're about to see is fl is the flashbacks but Kate you know again extraordinary actress that she is has to imagine everything that you the audience have seen even though she was doing the scenes one after the other and therefore her character arc, listening to this man's story, she had to imagine in her head through those five days of, of filming, uh, which, as uh, Kevin always says, was a testament to her uh, ability to, to imagine things that, in a way that she wasn't even present at when they were being filmed. Of course, Kevin and I were were there for everything, so it was kind of easier for us. Well, I suppose I should tell you how I became the head of philosophy at the University of Austin. Come on, think. I want you to reach back into those And we filmed um, the these sequences at a very large university um, in Austin which I'm not allowed to mention because that was the agreement we had with the university. But it's uh, very large and um, in our film it's called The University of Austin, which obviously is fictional. These were all real students and uh, the great thing about doing this scene was that uh, uh, 
we ha obviously, as as you do with film, you you shoot it many many times. And uh, uh, Kevin was great with the kids. He kept them enthralled throughout the whole whole uh, lecture. Um, and where Kevin really excels is uh, uh, he's very comfortable with his celebrity. He was fantastic with the kids. So many actors, when they finish doing their scenes or whatever the day's work, they put the old baseball cap over their heads and jump into their limo and they disappear. But Kevin's not like that. He'll wade into the crowd and sign autographs. And uh, he's he's uh, very comfortable with who he is. Now, Rona Mitra is actually, uh, who plays the character Berlin, she's actually English. I'd cast her in, in London. I, I, I had done a great deal of casting in Los Angeles and New York for this particular part. And then I thought Rona would be very good for it. The, uh, the, the actual lecture that's happening here, I think uh, it's worth mentioning Charles Randolph, who wrote the, the screenplay. As I said, it, it was his very first script that he'd ever, you know, written. He was he, not really a Hollywood animal. He uh, comes from the world of academia. He uh, was a professor of philosophy, similar to the character Go, uh, at a university in Vienna. And uh, I think that uh, the, the brilliance of his screenplay is that he, where you can promulgate the ethical importance of Lacan and yet still keep an audience on the edge of their seat for two hours is quite an achievement. Uh, Laura Linney here obviously plays Constance. Uh, I'd always been a fan of Laura for a long time, obviously. She's primarily a theatre actor in, 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 in New York and uh, an extraordinarily generous person. Um, this particular scene was interesting. I remember Rona, uh, I'm, I'm had choreographed it for her to sit down. I don't think she was very comfortable sitting down, but there was a reason for that, to, to anchor her in that position. Um, sometimes actors kind of disagree with what you're doing, and other times uh, they kind of get cotton on to what you're, you're on about. But uh, I remember doing this scene, and uh, I just wanted to keep it as simple as possible and let the words do the work and I think that uh, very rarely do you get a screenplay that is written with, with as much intelligence as this one so I think that's a testament to uh, Charles Randolph Hey Hey the TA finished transcribing all the governor's radio This uh, was obviously the first scene we see with, with Laura here although it wasn't actually the first thing we shot uh, all of this was done on location at the university. Um, it's a mixture of different things. Anyone who's interested, this obviously is a steady cam shot, uh, which allows you to, to film, obviously, on the move very comfortably. Uh, then we get it outside. All these students were actual students from the university, of course. And we continue the, the whole of the steady cam movement. Uh, allows you to, to get very fluid movements and dialogue it's much used now in uh, in television because it's uh, it's actually quite uh, expedient in that uh, it's a lot easier to to set up than uh, than uh, tracks on a dolly i'm walking away 10 o'clock 
Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Bushy-tailed. This uh, sequence was uh, all done in a real house. Uh, the exterior of the house is different to the interior of the house, in actual fact, but uh, this little boy, Noah Truesdale, uh, I had cast uh, locally. Um, what I tend to do is, uh, whenever I get to a location, is uh, I hold open calls for all parts. Um, where local people come in, thousands of people come in, and I try and read with as as many as possible, uh, and I gradually narrow it down, and that way you get uh, an authenticity to the to the place because obviously the people that are coming in are are from that area. When you're casting kids, it's very hard; you can never see enough of them, quite honestly. So that was a separate uh, exercise where we uh, did in a very large. Uh, football stadium uh, and narrowed it down to Noah. I had uh, rehearsed with him a lot. Working with kids is never easy. And uh, also I think uh, it always helps when you get actors that are good with kids because you have to be very gentle. In the end, uh, film director's job really is to create an environment where everyone can be of their best and uh, encourage the best out of the actors. The party sequence was uh, shot at a very nice house in the suburbs of Austin, shot over a couple of nights. Um, here you see uh, uh, the two actors who here I'd cast lo locally, two actors, Chuck Corot on the right and Sean Hannigan on the left. Uh, this is the uh, faithful Steadicam, of course, uh, trying to do things in one, which is always... Uh, uh, helps with regards to the fluidity of, of your shots. It also helps, of course, when you've got terrific actors that you can uh, rely upon so you don't have to cut between it. Uh, again, reverse steady cam coming back into the, into the kitchen. Not easy to get through that door when there's ten of us in front of them, of course. The music I chose there was obviously the line of code in the future. It, uh, seemed to me uh, relevant to a faculty party at this particular period in time. Uh, obviously, we're back a little in time with regards to our story, because we're in the backstory at the moment. Uh, obviously, uh, uh, Berlin, the character here played by Rona, uh, we're laying the seeds of his demise. Uh, you see now already he's uh, he's beginning to drink too much. We've laid the seeds that his wife's having an affair. So his life is starting to fall apart somewhat. This music is Tony Price, who's a fantastic singer, I think, uh, whose work I didn't know until I went to Austin. She's a local Austin singer. That person you just saw there was the film director, my good self, playing the neighbor, stealing, stealing the food. I tried to make an appearance. It's, uh, homage to Hitchcock, I guess, and it's also a way of humiliating myself in front of the crew, which usually happens in the middle of the night when you're shooting a scene such as this. These limericks, um, uh, obviously were part of the original screenplay. Um, we, we did more limericks, actually, which I didn't use uh, all of them. Um, 
trying to uh, create the atmosphere as obviously David Gale here getting drunker and drunker, getting ready for the, the event which actually is pivotal with regards to his uh, descent and uh, his spiral downwards with regards to his life falling apart which obviously then leads him making very serious decisions about what his life means and what his beliefs in and what his political beliefs are. Again, uh, trying different music here. This is a Latin piece, again, very relevant to, to the area in, in Austin. I try and absorb myself in all the music of the area, obviously, when you go there. So it's pretty typical of um, what's being played in Austin. Any one moment you can hear 50 different kinds of music. It's n not the cliche uh, country and western everywhere. This scene is uh, obviously uh, the beginnings of of all of his problems. This particular scene is uh, was filmed actually um, on a set. Uh, we had to do that because obviously it's, uh, it had to be a very controlled environment. The most difficult thing of all is shooting in tiny areas. So this was was a set. It's always difficult when you're doing sex scenes in that. Uh, most importantly, obviously, it's it's my job to uh, make the actors as comfortable as possible when you're doing these things. Um, you try and minimise the crew so that uh, there's few people just gawking, but in the end, there's, there's a camera there and that camera has to be operated and that camera has to have assistance to make sure it's in, in focus. Particularly like this shot and the way in which she brings her hand up, I uh, think it's quite a nice moment. Contemplate, or you can put your mouth on my body. Don't reject me, please. The uh, intercutting is uh, was obviously done. Afterwards, I mean, it was always meant to be uh, intercut in order to build the frenzy of the of the whole sexual situation. As she uh, is in encouraging him to do something that probably he shouldn't have done. It's a terrible mistake, but that mistake is actually something that's going to be relevant to the rest for the rest of of our story and the rest of his life. Again, these kind of scenes when you're doing them is uh, it's amazing how unsexy it is when you're shooting it because it's uh you know in the end all i'm ever worried about is have i got the right shot is it this or that so they're very rarely sexually titillating for a crew stand around eating their bacon rolls rather yawning at what they're looking at but uh, in the end it's quite effective and powerful Very well, I think this this whole sequence. Uh, I should mention Jerry Hambling, who's my editor, who's cut every film I ever did. Um, rather unusual in that uh, it's all cut on film. It's uh, cut on a moviola. Michael Kahn, who is uh, Steven Spielberg's editor, is the only other one cutting on film. Now Jerry Hambling is retiring, so Michael Kahn's the last one cutting on film. The sequence um, we actually shot in a real coffee bar, which is 
very close to the university. It's a place where students hang out, basically. Uh, I like to have a combination of real, real places. Whenever possible, you try and shoot in a real place. You don't really want to build everything. Uh, obviously, it's you build things when it's convenient. Uh, even simple scenes like this are quite quite difficult to do. Not be, there was tons of room for us to maneuver, so it wasn't difficult in that regard shooting it. But um, there's 28 trucks out in the street, which causes havoc in the local in the local community. But um, that's filmmaking for you. Uh, I think Laura is very good in this scene. Also, the scene is important, obviously, because it uh, it shows very obviously that uh, he's made a terrible mistake, which, of course, horrifies Constance, who, within our story, is always the one who is uh, that much more committed and that much more conscientious about the cause, working as they both do for, for the organisation Death Watch. Death Watch organisation is... Uh, very similar to many organisations, uh, people who are active for the abolition of the, uh, the, the death penalty. Also, it touches upon the very one, f the heart of the film, really, which is to do with proof of innocence. That it is, if they had proof that an innocent could actually, uh, um, they could prove that an innocent had been executed, then that would be hugely important for their cause because actually innocence is the one area that uh, unites both uh, the for and against uh, argument with regards to the death penalty. Okay. These sequences were actually um, all of this debate were uh, was shot in in a real uh, television studio. Um, the uh, the idea, obviously, was uh, to replicate very similar programs that you see everywhere and across every channel on, in the United States. These kind of debates. Um, the the governor here of Texas, obviously, people have often said to me, "It's you know, is it George W." Well, <clears throat> there are similarities between the views of this fictional character, obviously in that uh, uh, he's very much for the death penalty and indeed George W. Bush was a great proponent for the death penalty, authorising as he did whilst governor of Texas 146 executions, more executions than, than any other governor in history. And so obviously the views of this particular character are close to those of, uh, of Governor Bush. When the script was originally written, obviously, he was the sitting governor. And But our film, obviously, is a, f is a fiction. So this, that's the, where the similarities end. People often ask me whether, you know, I should have cast a George W. Bush lookalike, which would have been uh, probably too ch cheap a shot. And uh, um, anyway, I couldn't find anybody. <laughs> I particularly like the writing in this scene. I think that uh, it, uh, it's pretty close to how it's written. Obviously, now and again, Kevin will slightly improvise, although um, <coughs> his kind of actor who does stay close to the text 
when you have actors who improvise too much, you can, as they say, uh, improve it to death. So I'm always very wary if we get too far away from the written word in that uh, if the words are good and they are in, in this particular screenplay, then you should keep close to them. Obviously, if an actor uh, has something uh, to contribute which is not there, then it's my job to see that uh, that's going to be good for a scene or sometimes you can improvise too much left or right of the actual lines to be uh, it's still relevant so but uh, this scene plays out pretty well accurately as it was written again the whole proposition that to prove that an innocent had been executed absolute proof uh, obviously the governor has caught him out and uh, obviously the one look really sows the seeds for everything that's about to follow. Constance obviously displeased with his ego getting in the way of their political beliefs. The scene was shot close to the recording studio and actually uh, also close to the campus of the particular university where we filmed. Uh, again, faithful steady cam shot. Learn to work without an audience, David. Try squeezing money from the donor list. Have you licked one single mail-out envelope? Mr. Gale? Oh, hey, guys, the governor went that way. Ramirez, Austin Police, this is Officer Hasserman. What, is debating the governor a crime now? No, sir. Rape is. Should just put in a word here for the transitions, which I've not really talked about before. Um, obviously, with my story going back and forth from the backstory to the present story, I needed a transitional device. Obviously, we didn't want to do the old... In the old days, you would have done a ripple dissolve, I suppose. So we had always uh, had this notion of the spinning camera, which was done with a camera actually on a gyro each time we did these transitions. And then at a later date during the editing, um, I experimented with these subliminal words, which are obviously relevant to our story. Um, they're key words, emotive words and the subliminally cut in to the uh, spinning of the camera. And then the percussion music actually um, came first and then we cut to that music in order to get this sharp staccato transition. Uh, just a way of trying to find an original way to, to go from front story to back story. Can you imagine his wife letting him stew in jail for two Here we are at uh, Sam's Barbecue, which uh, is a real place and uh, the best barbecue in Austin, they say. This scene obviously is important in that, uh, with regards to Kate's uh, character arc, in that uh, at the beginning, obviously, she's absolutely convinced that uh, the Gale is, is guilty. Obviously, Zach uh, has his doubts, but uh, very clearly that uh, Bitsy uh, is not buying anything other than the fact that he's guilty. I also sow the seeds here, obviously, of the, the character, Dusty, who we find as we wipe the frame here and find Dusty's truck. And we hear, uh, again, the uh, aria from Turandot, which will feature greatly uh, at the end of our movie. Here we're on day two. Um, this was shot in uh, uh, right in the middle of, of Austin, Texas. It's um, 
Uh, obviously, it's Constance House, but when we first see it uh, in the film, it's in its uh, present-day incarnation as uh, as the Death House Museum, run by this strange goth girl character, Nico. Um, rain machines here, of course. Um, I love to work in the rain. Anyone who's seen Angela's Ashes would probably think there was too much rain, but uh, um, it helps the atmosphere of this particular scene. The uh, actress here is uh, Melissa McCarthy, who I'd cast in Los Angeles. Constance's house. Um, we had uh, the real house, obviously, which is what you see here. We also had replicated it um, as a set, which we, uh, we built uh, in the aircraft hangars, which became our film studio, as I mentioned earlier. Um, Jeffrey Kirkland is my production designer on this one. Uh, Jeffrey has done many films with me, uh, right back to my first film, Bugsy Malone, which we did in 1975. So uh, I've worked with him uh, for many, many years. Also, uh, as I look at the scene, I think of the cinematography of the film. Um, Michael Saracen is the cinematographer of this particular film and again like Jeffrey has worked with me for over 30 years. The um, great thing about working with people over a long period of time is that um, obviously they're very good at what they do otherwise I wouldn't be working with them and they're um, in tune with how I film and so uh, it makes the actual mechanics of what we do that much easier because the dialogue is you have the rapport you have of any film director has with cinematographer or production designer. Uh, it's very important because the difficulty if you work with new people each time, which can sometimes lead to interesting things, um, it means that I'm forever having to explain what it is I want to do. But with people that you've worked with a long time, over 30 years, um, the dialogue becomes minimal because you absolutely uh, are in tune with one another. Obviously, one's aesthetic tastes are obviously similar, and therefore uh, I completely trust them, and they, uh, I guess, trust that uh, what I'm doing is correct too. Um, this is shot uh, inside uh, a set, and therefore obviously easier control with regards to light, etc. But uh, not all the scenes inside the kitchen and the living room were, were set. Often, if we were going from inside to outside, obviously, it had to be in a real place. Here we are back at uh, Sam's Barbecue in the rain, with the rain machines. Uh, again, I, it, the rain is really just to, um, to to give an atmosphere, in, particularly when you've got a scene uh, which uh, is an uh, expository scene, one that's trying to explain things, where you want to take the edge off the information that's being given there's always that fine balance. We have to lay the seeds, everything fits with regards to this story. And then, uh, by the same token, you still want to go for realism and naturalism. Obviously, you want everything to be as real as possible. Off the record. Here we are back in the uh, visitation room of the, our prison uh, and back into our set, courtesy of Geoffrey Kirkland, made of solid steel and bulletproof glass so much so that uh, Kevin was uh, completely trapped within there the only way I could talk to him was through that little uh, grill that you see at the bottom of the screen but uh, it looks pretty real however hard it was to film in obviously um, we can see K 
Kate is starting to think differently about this man. Uh, Kevin, of course, has the hard job here in that uh, he has to be convincing to her, but in, of course he's, t he's lying to her throughout, which is quite difficult to pull off, which is the uh, dramatic choice that, that Kevin made. Back on the record? Yes. The tripod had no fingerprints on it. That means that somebody brought it there. I suppose I was attracted to this screenplay in the first place because it is about something important that I care a great deal about with regards to capital punishment. Um, it's the polemical heart, obviously, of the film. Uh, it's not a political diatribe. It's, it's a thriller, and let's not be pretentious about this. This film got made because it is a very exciting thriller. But it is about something very important. Uh, I obviously, as a filmmaker, very much against the death penalty, but I hope it's not a diatribe. It's, it's, it's meant to be, to be balanced, and it's meant to be ambiguous because, in the end, most people's views are it's about fifty-fifty with regards to those people who are for the death penalty, and those who are against it. So, always half my audience is not necessarily agreeing with what I've got to say, but I. I'm of the opinion that film can affect debate. It can never change people's minds, but to be provocative uh, is my job as a filmmaker, and hopefully uh, people discuss the film afterwards. Here we see uh, another aspect to David Gale's descent downwards. Uh, Elizabeth Gast, who plays David's wife, uh, I had cast locally in, in Austin. This was shot, uh, obviously, in Austin. Hey, alligator. After a while, crocodile. Take it easy, dip and easy. Okie dokie, artichokey. His wife is obviously leaving him, the seeds of which we had sown before. An email. Uh, an email. To get an email is the new modern way to be told you're being dumped. Uh, obviously, losing his son is huge important to what happens to Gail and the decisions that he ultimately makes. The music here of our score is written by Jake Parker. Uh, been very fortunate in that um, I was able to work with my two sons, Jake Parker and Alex Parker, who did the score for the film. Uh, Jake is classically trained and did all the orchestral pieces, the emotional pieces. Alexander did the more contemporary rhythmic pieces, which were relevant to the to the thriller aspect of the film. And then, of course, they came together for a number of, of cues quite effectively. And it was done organically. They, they did the music exactly as I was cutting the film. Normally, you finish a film and you hand it over to the composer and um, then the composer just does his or her thing. On this particular film, um, the music was absolutely an intrinsic part of the editing process, which was you know, made possible, really, I suppose, because uh, I was able to work with my sons. Uh, we managed to get through the whole film without having an argument, which was a miracle. And uh, I'm very proud of the work they did. The scene was shot uh, actually in the real university in Austin. <laughs> 
Um, again, corridors and what we'd seen earlier, obviously, we had to echo that. This is the beginnings, really, of his uh, more drastic spiral downwards with regards to what's happening in his life. He's uh, obviously, his drinking is uh, becoming more and more open and more and more of a problem for him as his life starts to fall apart. This swimming pool was an image that uh, I thought was very powerful. It, uh, we didn't invent it. I went to this uh, um, apartment complex and um, the pool had been filled in, probably for safety reasons. Uh, I thought it was an extraordinary image to, to, um, to find. It's something that you could never invent, quite frankly. And the fact that uh, the kids uh, no longer have a pool but uh, they still uh, uh, enjoy the mud was something that uh, uh, I actually saw and then you try to replicate it for the film. Um, here, of course, Gail is desperately trying to get in contact with his wife and, and getting nowhere. Hello? Hello? This is the mud I was telling you about. This is an uh, extraordinary image, quite eccentric and, and bizarre. The restaurant scene here was shot uh, right in the middle of Austin. Uh, I particularly like uh, the actor here, Cliff Stevens, who I'd cast locally. I think he does a really good job in this scene, playing a uh, university president, telling Gail that, uh, that uh, even though he might be innocent, that uh, the rape charge obviously is going to be hard for him to sh shake off even though uh, he'd never been found guilty of that particular charge. The charges were dropped suddenly. But with regards to uh, uh, the whole concept of political correctness, he's someone that could never actually do his job. And his job was very much part of who he was as a person, a chariz charismatic professor. Uh, if you are a professor of philosophy, probably... Um, if you're if you're interested in philosophy at all, probably teaching is the only place where you can be a philosopher, and therefore to take that away from someone who is as intellectually uh, bright as as Gale is, is is taking away a huge chunk of who that person is. Here we see the street. This was shot on Sixth Street, right in the middle of Austin, actually, uh, amongst uh, some extras, but a lot of real people. It was shot with the Steadicam, and we really wanted to grab it, so we did it with uh, a very small crew. Um, and uh, a lot of people thought that uh, it was actually Kevin Spacey completely uh, uh, tanked up walking along the street because they're quite surprised to see him because uh, we did it almost for real. The actual scene is hugely important, not just to see his spiral downwards, but uh, it's, uh, the, from a philosophical point of view, uh, it's about the Socratic uh, sacrifice, a man who sacrifices his life for his ideals, uh, which absolutely is uh, at the heart of what the character ultimately does within the film. And so although it's a drunken uh, uh, rant, it actually is hugely important to everything that the film is about. Well, my knee. My knee. That's plural. My knee. <laughs> 30 bucks! 30 
This was actually the last thing that uh, Kevin shot. It was his uh, very last scene and uh, was done in the very late at night. And uh, uh, at the end of the scene, uh, we went into the bar right next door there to say goodbye to Kevin. Who was also a prissy dresser. Here we are back in the, uh, the pool, full of mud now, full of rain and water, as we uh, see uh, David Gale spiraling downwards, his life falling apart, drinking more, not able to get through to his kid. Obviously the uh, fish tank there is an echo of what went before, it being the only thing he has to remind him of his previous life and his previous home. Without a successful completion of an alcohol treatment... This bar scene was shot um, on 6th Street, 6th Street being the, uh, the main music street in Austin. There's more music goes on in this street than I've ever seen anywhere in my life, including New Orleans. Every bar you go into has some kind of live music, and it's all different kinds of music. Uh, this particular bar is right in the middle of 6th Street, uh, obviously shot during the day here. Uh, as we see David, uh, obviously a rock bottom, and uh, his lawyer friend, Bellieu, telling him to pull himself together, get his act together. That's a whole different kettle of crawdads. You want to see Jamie again? Then you get your life together. I'm fine. I'm fine. Pronto. This is the Alcoholics Anonymous scene, obviously. David knows that he's got to pull himself together. Uh, this was shot uh, just outside Austin in a small town called Taylor. Taylor was a small town that uh, actually, where I filmed a lot of, of, of the scenes in the film. Uh, as I said, it's very typical of a small-town America, kind of half-empty, which made it very useful to film in. This is the uh, the Radio Shed uh, executive. Uh, as you notice, it's not it's Radio Shed and not a similar name for obvious reasons. Uh, the actual place. Um, the actor here is uh, Chris Drury, who I had cast locally. Here we are in uh, Constance's house in its uh, incarnation as, as her house and not the uh, hideous version that uh, Goth Girl turns it into. Um, remembering that uh, Constance is also uh, a university professor of poetry, although we didn't really didn't really figure in the in our story, but it was important for for Laura to feel that who she was as and who her character was with regards to her sensitivities. Uh, obviously, Kevin here uh, humiliated, trying to get his act together and cleaning up with regards to his drinking. I'm sorry. Welcome back. <laughs> you look good. I feel good. Laura plays part of Constance. Laura did quite a lot of work with regards to understanding the kind of character that she's playing. She met with very similar university teachers who are also uh, activists against uh, the death penalty. Hey, where'd you get that bruise? Oh, just doing chores. Is your cowboy getting rough with you? Uh -huh. 
This obviously is in the, the real Constance house. Garden obviously takes very different turn when uh, when it's Gothgold's house. Uh, although they were filmed very close together, just a couple of weeks apart. Constance's back porch obviously becomes quite important for one of the most important scenes in the film. Thinks she's Roosevelt's bathrobe, but I mean, stark raving, screws loose in the belfry, insane. Seventeen. Seventeen is very important. Obviously, the execution of juveniles, which is anybody who's 17 above when they actually committed the crime. That's Texas, one of very few states that does that. This is Joe Edna is the name I gave to uh, the babysitter that we'd seen earlier in the house looking after his kid. Joe Edna happens to be also a name of uh, one of the casting directors on the film. Rather unusual name, so I gave it to the babysitter so we could uh, recognize it. This is the Death Watch interior. All of this was shot in a small town called Taylor, just outside Austin. Um, this was obviously an empty shop which we obviously dressed and by Jeffrey Kirkland and Jennifer Williams to to be the death watch office maybe some cable cables good listen I need to run for now I, I agree the first press release should focus on the woman's youth I'll have the Washington at this moment we have some hope that he'll be okay but of course humiliation what happens in this scene actually sets him once again on his downward spiral no good Keep it that way. His relationship with Death Watch is over. Last thing we need is this rape thing coming back to John. us on the bike. And these guys don't stay in the wagon for very long. John. You know, I'm serious, Constance. Ban him from the premises. I realize the two of you Exterior here was uh, shot again in Taylor, just outside Austin. This music cue is used a lot through the film. Uh, it's actually one of the very few cues that uh, Alex and Jake did together. It's obviously as its rhythmic pad, which Alex did, and then Jake laid on his cello motif on top of it. And uh, it kind of adds to the somber feel of what's happening right now as, as Gail is losing it finally gets through to his kid, but obviously the phone is taken away from the kid, so... Wait, wait, don't hang up the phone! This was... These kind of scenes are always tough to do, because whenever you're ripping something apart like this, this is all for real. And then, of course, he does cut his hand, which is uh, hard to act and must have hurt a lot. when you trust the good actors. Here we see Laura, who obviously, with regards to uh, the development of her character, she's getting sicker and sicker, and we're aware of this uh, in a very subtle way. Probably we're aware of it before Gail himself is aware of it. She walks up and finds him there, obviously in a sorry state, having been drinking all night. He's clutching, of course, the kid's uh, sheep, which is called Cloud Dog, 
which uh, we'd seen earlier with regards to how important it was to the kid. And it's his one contact, obviously, with them. He had the memory of his child. And obviously this uh, furry animal figures quite importantly at the end of the movie. Never easy to, to play drunk. Uh, never easy to play drunk when you're actually delivering quite a complicated speech. Again, thanks to Charles Randolph, rather elegantly written. Of course, Constance is about to collapse. Not that he would notice at this moment in time. Just by mistake. Ergo, they never really gave him business unless absolutely desperate. That's why. And then they changed his name. Your mail is blowing. Constance! This is one continuous Steadicam shot through 180 degrees. We filmed in a disused mental hospital, which we obviously dressed for, for this scene. I don't know what's wrong. Please. Is there a doctor? Excuse me. Wait here. I have to go with her. Hold up, Professor. Excuse me, I don't want to go. You want to get arrested again? The hospital orderly is played by Chris Warner, who I cast locally, and he also helped us with the casting. Now go wait. Again, the camera pans around. Or one continuous shot. Here, Gail finds out the seriousness of Constance's illness. Uh, the doctor here is played by Cindy Michelle, another local actor. I must say, I was very fortunate in Austin because it has a very uh, vibrant uh, film industry. There are lots of excellent local actors and I was very fortunate. There aren't many places that you could go uh, outside the major centers and have such an incredible catchment of really good actors. You didn't know? It helps because there is obviously an authenticity and, uh, and a freshness when you see uh, actors playing parts such as this that you aren't overly familiar with. We go through the uh, transition sequence again to seeing Gail obviously very, very upset by Constance's illness. Important for, again, I'll say Kevin's got the hard part because he's uh, He's obviously uh, completely distressed, but I think it's also worth saying that uh, Kate is reacting to his pain, and obviously her character arc is moving considerably towards being uh, sympathetic to what he has to say. And although he's deeply emotional and truthful, because obviously he cared a great deal for Constance, you have to keep reminding yourself that he's, he's not entirely telling the truth. To, to Bitsy.
here we are outside the real Ellis prison. Um, those were actually real prisoners you just saw there uh, playing ball. We were allowed to be in this area. Uh, obviously, as I said, it's a maximum security prison, so beyond that fence there uh, was when our set kicked in when we first saw those scenes. Once again, the uh, faithful Steadicam here. Not always uh, the best uh, thing to use because the great difficulty is when you come to rest and then you don't want any movement, so you have to have a pretty good steady cam operator with a very stiff back to make it work. We pick up the payola money in Houston tonight. Houston? That's what the head office said. Overheat light came on twice. Um... Come on. You'll notice that it's the Randolph Motel, uh, our homage to our screenwriter. This was actually shot, uh, again, close to Taylor, where a great deal of our filming was, was done. Here we are with the uh, rain machines working again. Extremely uncomfortable for the actors, not to mention the director and the crew. Oh, man, I never knew a million bucks could weigh so much. Half a million. But it's still heavy. But a million sounds better. These kind of scenes are the hardest for the sound man because they have radio mics, but the uh, sound of the rain machines uh, is much heavier than, uh, than real rain. So the moment it hits roofs and things, it's a nightmare for the sound man. Excuse me? You want to come in? This is a lighter moment, I would describe it as. The fact that uh, he thinks that she might be at all romantically involved with him is beyond her comprehension, and probably the audience is too, but uh, Zach being Zach still gives it a try. Here they discover the tape. The tape on the door and the tape hanging from the ceiling. Wait. Again, the, uh, the cello motif is there, but obviously the higher strings are helping to punctuate the uh, drama of the situation. This is not good. Although we were in the real motel just previously, this was actually shot two weeks after the scene you just saw. This was actually shot uh, in our set. The whole of this motel complex was a set. seen screenings of the film uh, the audience jumps in the air at that moment quite rewarding 
here we're back into uh, the real rain machines and the real motel all of which was shot prior to shooting these interiors which I said were done much later these kind of scenes are always difficult in that uh, this was the first time really that uh, they'd seen a hint of, of the, the videotape that we were about to see are you sure you want to see what's on here? I think that the the video of Constance, which we're about to see, was probably singly the most difficult thing that we had to do. It was very harrowing, obviously, for Laura as an actress. Not only the discomfort of having the bag on her head, but uh, that's not a body double, that's actually Laura. So the uh, the discomfort of being naked is one thing and the discomfort of, of having that bag on your head which is done almost for real so it actually was quite dangerous to do this was very disturbing for all of us when we actually shot it it uh, it was done with obviously with great care and with regards to safety but uh, one of the hardest things I've ever done the scene originally was a little longer than we just saw but it was so tough to take that I cut it down to the minimum. And here we are now, back into the real motel. Um, we've no longer in the set itself. This is one of our main themes that you hear, which is called Almost Martyrs, is the name of the cue. And cue we use through the film. All the orchestral pieces were recorded at Abbey Road Studios. He deserves it though, probably. This diner was uh, right opposite the university right in the middle of Austin. Um, I had originally um, uh, more interviews. You saw the girl that was being interviewed there. Originally I was going to have two or three other interviews, but uh, I didn't put them into the final cut in the end. So I just felt that I should get into the scene quicker. I mean, again, it's there's a great deal of exposition and theory coming out here within this scene. Uh, originally I had uh, an idea that there would be some right-wing threat that uh, could uh, give us another thread to the story but it, it it sort of unbalanced things and there's a latter scene well I'll explain that this particular scene was the very first scene actually that, that Kate shot when she first arrived one of the great difficulties when you're making a film is that often you're shooting out of sequence which is makes it it's tough on the actors it's, it's tough on the director because in the end you have to hold the whole movie together in your head as you're making it tiny piece by tiny piece. This sequence was uh, shot in an area outside of Austin. Uh, a couple of different times we did this, it was 
although it's obviously a con continuous sequence, uh, as often with these kind of sequences, they're done piece by piece on different days, and you're always crossing your finger that fingers that uh, your your weather is going to match. Here we are in Austin, in the Capitol building you see at the end of the street there, in Bellier's office, which is shot pretty well uh, close to the Capitol, just as the wide shot indicated. I couldn't sleep afterwards. I understand. I generally tell folks I'm no more afraid of the Grim Reaper than I am of a prisoner. Leon Rippey, the actor who plays Bellier, is an extraordinarily nice man, absolute delight for a director to work with. And uh, he has a great face, and those teeth are something else. I think he must be the only actor in Hollywood who didn't get his teeth fixed. But uh, it was a good move on his part. I think that's that's why he gets all the roles he does, because he's, uh, his teeth are not immaculate. <laughs> this ain't my first rodeo, Miss Bloom. This obviously was uh, a set built into a, an empty building. Um, it looks uh, like it's been there forever, but of course it's a complete set. Again, beautifully dressed by Jennifer Williams. Why? Well, you've been fraternizing with the condemned. I've been what? Of course, Leon Rippey playing the part of Belia, he has the same difficulty really playing the part as, as, as Kevin does in that we're never quite sure if this guy is legit or not. Of course, at the end of the movie, we find out that he is actually in on it, everything. For, for a, a long while, though, we wanted to give the impression that perhaps if there was a villain of the piece, then it might well be him. So he certainly appears to be an incompetent lawyer uh, and yet suspiciously involved with everything. This was shot on a totally separate day, obviously, and, and totally different exterior uh, compared to where the interior was. I obviously had to have a reason for her to go back, which is where the, the coat business came in, where she now sees Dusty, who's on his way up to see Belia, obviously involved in everything, but not sure what. I remember it took hours to get those pigeons to come back every time we did that shot. Oh Wait, he was here? He's in the lobby. Go see if his truck's out front. Tail him. Get a license number. Again, you hear the, uh, what we call the Lacan theme. The cello piece coming in. This uh, scene we called Cat and Mouse was again shot uh, on different days. Uh, all to become one piece. McRaven was a pretty useful driver, so we didn't need stunt drivers for this. Also, the difficulty of working with trains. Uh, obviously, there's a safety factor involved. Uh, the cameras have to keep away from the tracks and all those things, so it's an illusion, really. It looks much more dangerous than it actually is. And we have a scene at the end with the birds flying up, which was fortunate, because I saw that, and it helped to punctuate the scene. Again, this was very difficult for Kate because, as I said earlier, all of the interview sequences were actually shot one after the other in a very short space of time. Uh, and the cat and mouse hadn't been filmed even when we did this scene. Uh, and for her character arc to occur convincingly uh, is very much to, to Kate's credit in that really understanding 
each time that we did these sequences where we would be in the story, even though she hadn't actually seen it filmed and and obviously hadn't um, seen it completed and cut together. This is uh, obviously an important scene because what we're doing is uh, trying to persuade the audience that Dusty is more of a threat than he actually turns out to be. Also, we're seeing him as someone who is very much against Gale. So Gale, the character, Kevin, the actor, have to convince us that this man is a threat, even though, of course, once again, Kevin is not telling the truth. Gale is not telling the truth. These sequences of, the, of this particular uh, abolitionist rally were all shot um, at the Capitol as we see it there. Um, this was originally going to be a much longer sequence. Um, what I kept of it is, is this speech by Constance, which I think is a very important speech with regards to not just uh, articulating what Constant, the character, believes with regards to the death penalty, but I think in many ways um, it sums up what myself and certainly Charles, the writer, believe with regards to our own personal attitudes to the death penalty. As Constance says at the end of this speech, in the end a civilized society must live with a hard truth. He who seeks revenge digs two graves. And that last sentence, I think, absolutely sums up how I feel about capital punishment. Here we see uh, Constance's growing frustration that uh, another death and that conventional activism just doesn't seem to be working for her. Just look, look at those losers. Rednecks, ghetto hustlers, drug addicts, schizophrenics, they're murderers and who cares if they die? Who cares if the cycle of it just it goes on and on and on and on? Who cares? <laughs> who cares? This following scene is my favourite scene in the film. I think it's very beautifully written by Charles and extraordinarily well acted by both Kevin and Laura. When you're faced with a scene like this, I think it's important that you shoot it as simply as possible. That movement of the camera was probably about as tricksy as it gets. I shot it simply because I wanted to do justice to the, to the acting and to the words. And I think that uh, both Kevin and Laura are, are pre pretty terrific in this scene. Anger, denial. I think it's also worth noticing that uh, once we get away from this very formal, simple two-shot, that because I shot it in a very simple way, medium shot here and closer eventually, that editing a scene like this sometimes can be very difficult to do. When people think of great editing, they always think of the flashbang wallop action type films. But actually, the most difficult scene to cut is something as simple as this. And I think uh, this shows Jerry Hambling 
at his best, the choices that he makes and the subtlety with regard to how he cuts it, which absolutely does justice to to the acting and to the words. Sometimes this kind of editing is so much more difficult to do than action sequences. Should have had more sex. Really? Mm. Well, how, how many lovers did you have? Including college. Including college. Well, sex is really, you know, it's, it's not all that it's cracked up to be. <laughs> it's so overrated. You should have had more sex. Mm. You worked so hard not to be seen as a sex object. Before long, you're not seen at all. Hey. I see you. You want to make it five? <laughs> Complete the hand. <laughs> what a pity lay. <laughs> no thanks. Hey. It wouldn't be pity. This sex scene I shot very simply. In fact, I never really thought of it as a sex scene. To me, it's a dramatic scene that happens to take place while the couple are having sex. Are okay? It's shot very simply on a very long lens, so the depth of field is very small, so that you're aware of what's going on, but there's nothing that's gratuitous to the imagery. Laura is pretty terrific in this scene. And so I kept it simple, that one simple panning shot across from the foot to the head. And everything there that's happening is happening because the actors are making it happen. And all we're doing is observing it and the camera's not getting in the way of the drama. And it's all one shot until we cut to the wide shot. The light going on is to indicate this is the moment when the two of them come to their very important decision about what they're going to do. This is Gail, obviously, on the lawn of his old house, which now has new owners. This Christ-like shape, something I've done often in my movies, um, that was shot on the end of an arm with a remote camera. Of course, what Gail is doing is telling Bitsy this story. What we are seeing, of course, is all narrative from him to her. We introduce Dusty in the same way that uh, Gail is misleading Bitsy, then uh, we, the filmmakers, are deliberately misleading 
hopefully the audience at this point, with regards to the involvement of Dusty. the end of the sequence. A man alone thinking about the decision that he's made with regards to how our story will unfold. The toy obviously a memory of the child. This was shot uh, again in the small town of Taylor. The ever-present rain machines Yet another wet night for the crew. And this music by Alex Parker takes us into the transition, puts us back into the prison. He knew you both? He visited that morning? If I could answer that for sure, we wouldn't be having this conversation. It's what I need you for. Here we see the completion of her arc from a person who arrived in the prison visitation, uh, absolutely convinced that he was guilty, and now, of course, he is, he's told her lies, really, and completely convinced her that uh, he is innocent and he's being set up by Dusty. That's what's in her head right now. Again, I, I stress that Kate did these scenes one after the other, and for her to, to be able to develop a character just not even day by day, but hour by hour, when she had no knowledge of, of his life that we've seen in film, except, of course, she did it by really thoroughly uh, reading the text and knowing the script. Every, every moment, every word of the script off by heart to know exactly where she is with regards to her character. It's obsessions. When your habits survive your dreams. And when your losses Maybe death is a gift. You wonder. That's it. Let's go, Gil. All I can tell you is that by this time tomorrow, I'll be dead. I know when. I just can't say why. You have 24 hours to find out. And with that sentence, he sets off the ticking clock, which informs the last part of the movie with regards to tension and how it's cut.
we are at uh, the real prison at Ellis as they leave the prison. Turn your coat. Getting kind of chilly. Any news from our video intruder friend? No. Any word on the Once more, I introduce Bellieu in a very shadowy light to add to the suspicion of his involvement. At this point, we're not sure if he's friend or foe. What's shaping up with regards to her story is that obviously Dusty was involved in some way, which is what's going through her head right now. You tell him I'll take care of it. About his son, I mean. I'll do that. You stand for the execution? Then I'll see you tomorrow. Watch yourselves. Mr. Bellew. Were Dusty Wright and Constance close? Oh, yeah. Thick as thieves, those two. Lovers? Oh, now. You plowing a little too close to the cotton, Bitsy. That was just a rumor. Nothing more. Night-night. Again, the sequence of the video that we've seen so far. Uh, each time that I introduce the video, I try to show a little more of what went on. Originally, uh, when I first cut this sequence, I had a whole lot more of the video, and I minimized it, partly because it's kind of tough to take more than once, and. Uh, Obviously, I have to have a place to go with regards to what we're about to see when we see more and more of the video. This sequence here actually is the only sequence we shot inside the actual prison at Huntsville. This is the alleyway that goes to the real execution chamber. We were allowed in with a very small crew to do this. Uh, and it's kind of eerie when I watch it because I know that that van actually is pulling up not to a set but to a real place. Of course, here is the car, and then we are not in the real place at this point. We're back into our set as we see him come to the small building, which is a replica of where all the executions take place in Texas, uh, building 1835 there. And these holding cells are an exact replica of the real place. When I went there and was shown around for the very first time, uh, and where the camera is, is the door to where the executions take place. Here we see Bitsy, Kate, waking up the next morning. This was back into our set situation. Um, only in so much as the only reason it's set is because obviously tiny motel rooms are quite difficult. It's hard enough getting the actors in some of those tiny rooms, let alone 40 film crew as well, which is the reason why we uh, make our life a little easier by making it into a set. 
Obviously, this is the moment where she sees the crumpled towel, which triggers her ideas as to what actually happened. on the floor. What? This towel was on my bathroom floor. Did you throw it there? Yeah, I guess. What? It's a motel. Would you do that at home? No. Jesus, Bitsy. It's not like we're staying in the friggin' Four Seasons. Come on. Get the TV. We're taking it with us. Taking it with us? What, what, what are you talking about? Where are we going? This always amuses me, this scene. The, the way in which the two of them encircle one another in the desperation to do what is seemingly quite simple, but actually it's the hardest thing for actors to unplug things and grab them and still keep the action going without it in real in the real world of course plugs never come out that easy here we're back uh, to Constance's old house now uh, the goth girl's house of course we know because we're in present time this is a classic example of how great Kate can be to help everyone with regards to her action uh, she helps the cameraman here because there's a very low light level, as you can see, and therefore very little depth of field. So she uh, very unselfishly choreographed the thing so that she could help the camera guys. Can you move that stuff off the counter for me by the lamp? Yeah. This was quite interesting to shoot because uh, obviously. Um, it's all happening in real time with regards to the what you see on the on the television screen as opposed to what's happening in reality uh, led to come to some quite interesting uh, formulations of angles and shots and things I used the uh, small video camera all the time even when all the stuff you see of Constance there on the right hand screen um, was never shot on film. It was always shot on a very uh, simple video camera, similar to the one that uh, Zach has, uh, in order to make it as authentic as possible. It's always difficult when you're doing such a scene, uh, of which we see more of later, obviously. The temptation is to be safe, you should film it actually on film, not on on a cheap video camera because you never know what would go wrong but uh, uh, I didn't really want to take it from film and then transfer it to video because there is something uh, aesthetically and dramatically interesting about the fact that the whole of Constance's uh, situation there was filmed on on a very very simple camera and it gives it another another dimension another life I have to say that uh, uh, as a director, I'm not one to go what they call in England the lovey route with regards to how good people are, but uh, I have to say a good word about Kate and and uh, Gabriel Mann, incredibly nice people. Kate, in particular, is uh, one of those actors who not only helped me, but every single person on the crew, and it seems that that would be normal but uh, in an industry that's uh, plagued with egocentric actors um, 
it's actually very rare that you get uh, someone who's so generous to everyone and this was a particularly generous cast as I say to one another as actors certainly to me I remember this these cells when I first went into the prison the real prison at Huntsville uh, I found kind of creepy and it's 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 weird that we replicated it so accurately this is the reenactment of of uh, Constance's death although I have to say it's probably tougher on Laura because Laura did it first and then uh, Kate has to reenact it slightly more difficult for Laura because she also had the added uh, uh, humiliation of, of being naked but what Kate's doing here is not easy that bag goes on and that tape goes on and you suddenly <clears throat> you feel that you have quite a responsibility as uh, as a filmmaker because film is an illusion and yet what we're looking at here is a real person that's Bitsy Bloom but that's also Kate Winslet there with a real bag on her head with and and it's absolutely sealed uh, and there is there's danger to these kind of scenes we of course take huge precautions with regards to uh, we have paramedics on hand obviously just a yard away from where Kate is and uh, obviously uh, it's my job to make sure that uh, everyone is as safe as possible but it's kind of scary because uh, where is the line between is this Kate acting here or is this uh, is this a person in in real difficulty and uh, I know that I found that extremely disturbing when I filmed this no more experiments all right just tell me what's going on are you okay she did it herself oh. she did it herself she used the gloves to keep her fingerprints off the here we see uh, Kate uh, figuring it out. She actually is not figuring it out correctly, but as far as all the information that we, the audience, have and and she has, this is the revelatory moment for her. The fact that uh, the slight red herring where we're taking the audience, um, this is her uh, logic for actually what happened in that uh, Dusty and Constance were perhaps in it together. This was a particularly difficult seen to shoot in that I did it twice the first um, first day I did it um, we had a, a very bad light it uh, we had very bad weather and suddenly it, everything went very dark and so it made it almost impossible to film and uh, you kind of persevere for a while and then you suddenly realize it's actually better to to uh, abandon and start again the next day which is what I did with this so that you have uh, constant constant light to to film with particularly in such an important scene where where Kate has so much exposition and it has to really uh, click with regards to what's happening because we the audience have to be extraordinarily attentive because she's supposedly uh, solving the riddle for us of course as we know with regards to the whole film it's absolutely not what happens but as far as the audience is concerned Dusty in his little shack here is responsible. We filmed this. This was 
this shack, believe it or not, uh, although obviously we dressed it with that wall of horror up there, uh, was pretty well how we found it. We actually borrowed this shack from a family who were living in here and uh, we put them up in a hotel for a, for a week whilst we uh, did these scenes. I know the place looks pretty shabby and eccentric, but uh, there are many such buildings in the rural areas outside Austin. What a dump. This guy's a freak. This uh, disused bowling alley is uh, was actually dressed to be, so it's it was just a regular building by the side of the street, quite close to where where Dusty's shack was. An important scene, and again, she's piecing together a jigsaw puzzle where the pieces seem to make one particular picture, but actually that's not the picture. It's correct, but as far as uh, the audience and I think the construction of the film and the construction of the, the original screenplay, this would be the usual summing up of, of where a film might go like this with regards to obvious conclusions of clues that have taken us to this place. It's an unusual story, an unusual construction, and of course everything that's happening here is... Uh, with regards to its conclusiveness is actually not what's going to happen and I think that uh, that's actually what gives the film its edge. This aria we keep hearing is obviously from Turandot, not Turando as I used to call it before I knew better. Um, we recorded uh, at Abbey Road and very beautiful aria that it is and obviously every time we come to to Dusty, we, we, we play it because it, it figures rather importantly when we see the, the whole opera later, which I'll talk about when we get there. Zach! So, don't move from the phone. Call the second you see his pickup. Remember, let it ring just once, then get into the woods. I know, go! Into the woods, Zach! Go! Here we are outside uh, Huntsville Prison. It's the actual prison, of course, where all the executions take place in the state of Texas and have done for uh, well over 100 years. Um, we try to recreate it as authentically and as accurately as possible. I intercut the PR man uh, describing the poisons that go towards lethal injection, which uh, is often done to explain how matter-of-fact the whole process is and, as they are always pointing out, how cheap it is. Also, the, I intercut it with this odd and curious obsession, particularly with the media, with regards to people's last meal. There's a whole website, in fact, where um, all of the last meals of everyone who's executed is, is described. Obviously, Gail's last meal is, is relevant to, to the to the meal that his child originally wanted. Faithful steady cam. Best way to show someone's point of view as they're moving, obviously. 
particularly over rough ground. I had uh, put together this wall of images, uh, which she's about to find out. In a way, I suppose, it was to show that uh, there are right-wing zealots and there are left-wing zealots and there are people who, like Dusty, who are so passionate about their cause that, uh, in an odd way, these images that uh, Bitsy, Kate, is about to find are really about uh, man's inhumanity to man, which Dusty has made into his own collage and although it's there because he obviously believes these things to be wrong in an odd kind of way the fact that they're all there together all these hideous images uh, makes its own obscenity which is the point I was trying to make um, this sequence was rather tricky to do for Kate just the mechanics of 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 trying to keep the the pace of the whole thing going intercutting here um, all of the images um, that you see on the screen are kind of obviously Pavarotti relevant to to Dusty's um, obsession with uh, with opera, the cliché programs that people ha have videos of. We saw a very quick glimpse of a Christmas party with with Laura and and, and her colleagues at Death Watch, just very briefly intercutting with the other video images. This uh, isn't dusty, but obviously Zach thinks that it is. This gas station was quite near to where we filmed uh, the shack and has its own aesthetic, obviously, with regards to being very indicative of, of, of that area of Texas. This uh, scene was done uh, with Kate uh, in one as such, but it was when she finally gets to to the video we suddenly then cut out all of our music and all of our sound just to make it that much more more powerful. The video itself Kate had never seen before and she asked that she wouldn't see it until the moment that I had the camera on her. So this is Kate reacting to character constants but also reacting to to Laura who's actually about to do something that, uh, that that is very disturbing and with regards to what's happening on Kate's face um, this was the first time I revealed to her the actual video and so that's obviously a huge amount of acting going on but this is Kate reacting to her friend Laura the two actors she'd never seen the scene before and therefore a great deal of this pain is real with regards to watching Laura putting the bag on as I said before this was by far and away the most harrowing scene I've ever done and I've done some difficult scenes in my movies but um, this was for real this was Laura this is not a body double this is a real bag with sealed with real tape and they're real handcuffs and as I've said before, we have the added humiliation of, of being naked. This obviously is a huge revelation for, for the character Bitsy because it absolutely involves Dusty and Constance's death and therefore very crucial to our story. Ah! 
Fuck! You didn't show, come on! Please, Bitsy, come on! From here on, we have uh, the conclusion, really, I suppose, to, to the thriller aspect, the ticking clock, with regards to the energy with which it's cut and all of the other elements that go towards uh, making it as as exciting an ending as possible, if you can use that word, with with what is about to happen with regards to a man's death. Call everyone back. The governor, the warden, New York, the goddamn Supreme Court, death clerk. How far is it? You've got eight minutes, maybe more. Okay, we'll make it, we'll make it. You can do it. Go, go, go. The oddity of... Uh, this particular ritual is that uh, prisoners have a shower before execution. The theory being that uh, the undertaker uh, appreciates a clean corpse. My God. On that big pileup on I-35. Give me the goddamn time. Outside uh, Taylor, and there we have the image that we saw at the beginning of the film, and begins her run to save a man's life. The scenes outside the prison were uh, uh, pretty realistic. The Texas Department of Criminal Justice were extraordinarily uh, helpful with allowing us to have helicopters and it's more than one helicopter obviously because there's a helicopter above that helicopter filming the crowd beneath. Um, the chief PR man at the, at the Texas Criminal Justice Department actually was at dinner and said uh, he, ha he met a friend who said was there an execution there today because the local people thought it was a real execution of course it wasn't it's us replicating the media madness that goes along with with a high-profile execution as of course David Gales would have been very high-profile uh, being as he was the state's leading abolitionist for the death penalty uh, I use a lot of video and cameras with regards to trying to um, reflect upon the way in which the media uh, cover such uh, situations it's also to do with the fact that uh, the media and mass media is being manipulated uh, in a way that uh, uh, is the opposite to how it, how it usually is the the whole media circus there is is something that they're quite used to at Huntsville they uh, 
they have a huge building just for journalists and it's a very sophisticated uh, media management uh, situation. These quick snippets of people I'd recorded all the way through the film, they're obviously not actors, they're real people, giving me their opinions of what they feel about the death penalty, unscripted. The, uh, the clock, courtesy of Fred Zinnemann and High Noon, uh, my mentor. The whole of this sequence was, uh, it was shot in, in a couple of days, but uh, not easy to do because inside there are real prisoners and uh, inside those walls is the place where real people die. David Gale was officially pronounced dead at 6.12 this evening. Texas has executed David. Gale was pronounced dead at 6.12 Death was pronounced at 6.12 this evening at the Walsh Prison. No final statement. Since none of the victim's relatives was in attendance, there will be no statement from the victim's family. moment we're not sure whether Dusty and Beaulieu are in on it together. Uh, there's certainly money in that case. Uh, that's not clear. What I try to do here is the, what I call a media frenzy, the piece of music that Alex wrote is, is, is called Media Frenzy and it's just to show the madness of the media. Anyone who has lived in the United States will be aware that uh, how much television uh, is part of everyone's lives and how many channels there are and how many reporters there are. And uh, It was a sequence that um, we spent quite a lot of time actually cutting because I shot a, a lot of material of different uh, commentators as we see here. Uh, and piecing it together was quite tricky for, for Jerry Hambling. But I hope it, it builds up the, the tension and uh, drama that goes towards the end of the movie. What we've actually done is to is to kill off the hero in normal movie terms, which usually there is the stay of execution with the phone call. Obviously, he's dead because this is a very different film, and we come to very different conclusions at the end of the film because we're trying to say different things. But this here is a montage of, uh, of the way in which the media would cover an event like this and saturation and craziness and madness of this media frenzy. Of course, the ultimate irony is that David Gale, a man who became an unwitting martyr, may achieve in death what he worked for, but could not accomplish in life. This is A.J. Roberts reporting from Vestrup. Here we are in Barcelona. I uh, filmed this whole Barcelona sequence uh, much later after we'd finished filming in Texas. We'd filmed in Texas from October to, to, to Christmas uh, in 2001 and uh, this um, was shot much later 
uh, in the spring of 2002 when uh, we thought we'd have a rest and get our sanity back after making the movie in Texas. I must say it was rather, rather strange filming in Barcelona after being uh, down in Texas. Um, this was an incredibly beautiful old house apartment that we had as a location. There, of course, is Gail's wife, ex-wife. Back to the news magazine, which, as I said at the very beginning of this commentary, is a, is a set. It's a, it was an empty office, but uh, everything you see here is, uh, has been dressed in by, uh, by the art directors. Cloud Dog comes out of the FedEx box. Um, we must be the only people in the world who didn't get any money from FedEx to do that. Back in Barcelona, David's sweater, his Harvard sweater. Originally it was going to be Yale, but the Yale people wouldn't give us permission, so Harvard did for some strange reason. Odd these things. The postcard from Berlin. This turned out opera we filmed at the Barcelona Opera for the crowd shots and we recreated the opera itself at Shepperton Studios, it's our version of it. Obviously the character Lou Mortes herself, which is the metaphor for our film. Janice Kelly is the soprano and we recorded that at Abbey Road. the final denouement of the film. Cloud Dog. And the tape that's inside of it. for me um, hopefully the audience still doesn't know what's going to happen it's interesting to know at what point people absolutely realized that Gail was in on the whole thing from the very beginning of David Gale. I'm very proud of this film indeed. As I said before, I don't think films can change people's minds, not two hours of in information or communication, but hopefully it will provoke debate about a very important issue. So I leave you with 
Alex Parker's song. Yeah. 